You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this fine day by Michael Farmer, who's coming at you from St. Bonifacius, Minnesota at Crown College. Michael, how are things? Oh, they're pretty good, uh, Nathan, except I apparently don't know who you are. Well, I mean, that does happen. That does happen. Uh also on the line, and perhaps also forgetting who I am, is uh, Dr. David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, David, how are things in Houston? Oh, pretty decent. Uh, actually, kind of chilly. They've been chilly all week. And just because listeners love to hear us talk about the weather, what counts as chilly in Houston? Mid-50s when you get up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I do want to say that the City of Man podcast has put out another good episode, this one on the interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, let's see here. I know Sectarian Review did one, and I know that I listened to it, and I know that I enjoyed it, but I'm blanking on the subject matter. Can one of you help me? It was on sh- uh, Shop Class's Soulcraft. That's what it was, yes, yes, and I've I've actually looked at purchasing that book. I think it's down to about six bucks on Amazon right now, so I might cool. actually give that one a read. Uh, any other network activity that you guys want to make note of? Speaking of books being down to six bucks, my own book has just been published, uh, and if you have six bucks plus eighty-four bucks, you can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> I think there's a, I think there's an e-reader version that's substantially cheaper if you do such things and want to read my book. Okay, very good. And uh, Michael, you mentioned on Facebook, and we probably should have talked about this before the recording, but I have no tact, uh, that you might be sending me a copy to do a Profiles episode on it, yeah? Uh, that's uh, what you said you wanted. But you, I mean, you were getting a copy anyway because you, you helped me. Okay, all right, because I I had seen earlier that you had a finite number of copies, and they were all spoken for. I didn't know if I was one of the speakers. Yes, you were. (laughs) So eventually I will send that to you, probably next week while I'm on spring break. So I guess there will be a Profiles episode on it? Yes, then listeners, there will be a Profiles episode on Michael Farmer's book, whose title is Imagination and Something in the Novels of John Updike, I think. Idealism. Imagination and idealism in John Updike's fiction. And once I've read the book, listeners, I will have the title down, I promise. Well, with that start, good friends, uh, if you listened to last week's episode, you know that today we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, You might have had a suspicion that uh, Nathan Gilmore was the sort of teenager, you know, 20-some years ago when I was a teenager, who would play some Dungeons and Dragons, and you would be right. Uh, and, you know, both David and Michael have uh, given hints that they had played such games, some more recent than others, so I figured we should have an episode about it. So, since we all have history, I mean, I want to go around the horn here at the beginning, talk a, bit, a little bit about personal experience. Uh, starting with Michael, what's your experience with role-playing games, or Dungeons & Dragons in particular, and... To what extent were they still scandalous among church folk when you were a teenager? Michael, go ahead and hit lead off. I don't remember ever hearing anything about them when I was a teenager. I I, um, I went to a, it was not a progressive church in any, any sense of the word, but it was a pretty standard mainstream evangelical church. And uh, I think I was more interested in fundamentalism than the church is because I remember reading I remember reading some books that that condemned Dungeons and Dragons, but I never heard anybody at my church talk about it. I was only vaguely sure what it was when I was in high school, so I certainly never played it or any other uh, in any other role playing game. 
I got interested in it when the uh, sitcom community did an episode where they all played Dungeons and Dragons, which I take to be, uh, I take to be the best episode of a uh, of a television sitcom in the last twenty years or so. Like it, it, you, you can find it on Hulu if you're if you're interested. It's called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but that's just a fantastic episode where they treat the game with respect, but also point out that it's kind of silly. Everything in the game is kind of silly. Um, and, and yet, like it's 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 used for plot devices to to push the season forward. It's just a really good episode of television that makes it look like a lot of fun to play Dungeons and Dragons. With that in mind, I have played role playing games like a grand total of five or six times. So I I played one called Seventh Sea uh, a few years ago, which was um it's like a, a Renaissance ish universe where they have pirates and. Uh, sorcerers and all sorts of stuff. So I, I played that, and then I played uh, a D and D knockoff called Pathfinder a few times. Um, and cool. and I, I don't know the differences between it and D and D because I've never played D and D, but it 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 you know featured similar situations and twenty sided dice and uh, and whatnot. Uh, the only other thing I can point to is I used to play the Final Fantasy games for Super Nintendo, mm-hmm. uh, and and those are pretty heavily now that I. Now that I have played role-playing games, those are pretty pretty heavily based on the Dungeons and Dragons model. So that's my experience. It's not extensive. Um, I am certainly by no means an expert on any of this. How about you, David? Well, I didn't play at all when I was uh, when I was a child. In fact, uh, I was a kid. You know, back in back in the eighties, at the kind of the the height of the. D and D is 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 scary and probably going to turn our kids into Satanists kind of thing. To the extent that I have a very vivid memory of being at the house of a, a neighbor kid down the street who asked if I wanted to play D and D and I'd never heard of it and and called my mother and my mom said come home immediately. So for years thereafter, I had this kind of sense that I'd had some kind of near escape from something that was was uh, was spooky and probably dangerous, which of course made me super curious about it. So, in when I was a teenager, I got into you know Final Fantasy and stuff like that on on video games and and whatnot. I, I had a taste for that kind of thing. I'd already I'd always loved Tolkien and Narnia and all the rest of that, and eventually read more and more about traditional tabletop role-playing games with the dice and the graph paper and all the rest of it until eventually taught myself a lot of this stuff and made a gaming group at my Bible college. We played in the basement of the library. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Now, the first thing that I played was not actually D&D. It was uh, Call of Cthulhu, which is based on uh, Lovecraft. Sure. Yeah, there was a number of a uh, number of guys uh, who were my friends who we we'd all kind of got into Lovecraft around the same time uh, at at college, and so you know it was an archaeology expedition with you know monsters and stuff. It was it was it was a lot of fun, but we got into uh, fantasy role playing thereafter. Eventually, uh, got into D and D three uh, three point five edition. Um, I'd previously played AD&D, that edition, once, but never uh, got a chance to kind of go back and develop that. That's Advanced Dungeons & Dragons? Is that what the A stands yeah, for? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's That was kind of the dominant... Uh, that was the, sort of the second edition of D&D through the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Had the really cool cover art. Anyways, since then... GURPS, generic universal role-playing system, played a lot of GURPS, played more Call of Cthulhu, played uh, played Pathfinder, which is actually a, a kind of builds on the basic system of D&D 3.5. Haven't played 4, haven't played 5. Grubbs, you must have played in graduate school with the other medievalists, right? You and Matt Lewis must have played D&D. I played with I played a, a, a actually a game test session with Joshua King once of a, of a system that was was sort of built around kind of pulp adventure like adventure serials that kind of thing like Flash Gordon uh, 
Buck Rogers, you know, Jungle Gym kind of stuff. Hmm. Which which that was fun, but we for the most part just didn't have time for it. Uh, one of our longtime listeners, Todd Howard, is actually the dungeon master that I've played most with. He's uh, he's in Alabama. Uh, actually went to went to college with him, and he's he he continues to uh, alternately DM and play with uh, a group that includes my brother Brian and my sister in law, Leah. So they they are they are keeping it going even though I'm I'm over here in Texas and and wistfully wish that I, I, I could be there. Soon your kids <laughs> will be old enough to play with you, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I've got a lot of friends who play with their kids. So Oh that's fun. fun. Mm-hmm. Well I actually came to this sort of universe uh actually in grade school. Uh there was a series of books called Lone Wolf by Joe Deaver. And they're mm. basically self-contained one-player role-playing games. So instead of rolling dice, there was a random number chart. You were supposed to close your eyes, although I often <laughs> cheated, and poke your pencil at you know a page in the back of the book, and then you had a character sheet in the pages just before that. Uh, and that really kind of got me you know primed to play this sort of thing. In junior high, uh, I started playing the Rifts game, which is sort of a crossover science fiction fantasy sort of thing. Uh, and that's really when I started getting into Advanced Dungeons hmm. & Dragons as well. What's interesting is there was definitely an element in central Indiana, even there in the late 80s, early 90s, that's, that had that satanic panic going. Uh, mm-hmm. The Dungeons & Dragons were, you know, uh, dangerous and, you know, dabbling in the occult and all those sorts of things. Uh, to the point that when I did start to get serious about Christianity as, you know, maybe a high school junior and senior... Uh, I remember having conversations with other kids in the youth group who were very concerned uh, that I played Dungeons and Dragons on the weekend. And, you know, I remember that was one of the first times that, you know, I I actually vocally uh, contested something in a church setting and discovered that that was possible. So it's interesting that my insufferable personality might be connected to early, you know, experiences with Dungeons and Dragons. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, once I, during those high school years, I should say, um, like I said, I was playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, a lot of superhero role-playing games, the Champion System, the Heroes Mm. Unlimited System. I -hmm. played a fair bit of Cyberpunk and Shadowrun, those sort of, uh, you know, pulp science fiction kind of games. Uh, So played a lot of it all the way through high school. Uh, And almost always in those games, I was the game master, the dungeon master. When I got to college... Mm -hmm. Uh, I discovered after the fact that I must have been kind of good at it because every game that I got into in college, the game master was awful. Uh, so <laughs> I said, well, I'll be. I, I didn't know back then. I thought I was just kind of going along doing what I did. But I must have been good at it because everyone else I run into is uh, just really, really wretched. Um, and so, uh, you know, got up into, you know, the upper years of college and, you know, I dropped off playing saxophone and also dropped off playing role-playing games. And I've fiddled here and there since then. Uh, and I've actually bought the, uh, hero system fifth edition. Um, and, you know, kind of showed my son the basics of it. He's not too interested in it yet, but I hope someday to play those things with my son. Awesome. Uh, so listeners, I mean, those are kind of our experiences with them. I mean, you know, all the way from, you know, very, very, early involvement to very, very late involvement. Um, But let's turn to uh, Dungeons & Dragons in particular. I mean, with critters like elves and dragons and dwarves and halflings running around, it's hard to deny that there's some Tolkien influence on Dungeons & Dragons as a franchise. Uh, David, you mentioned that early on, that, you know, that was something that kind of ran parallel to your interest. Mm -hmm. So what are the big sites of influence and what are a couple big departures from Tolkien's universe when we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons? Sure. D&D I think is what we have to think uh, what we have to thank for elves and dwarves at least in the form that they're typically imagined in fantasy contexts as well as orcs being sort of fantasy generic. Uh, there was a there was a time in the '60s, going into the '70s, in which Tolkien was an influential 
author of fantasy fiction, but most of the fantasy fiction that was being written by the kind of major writers of the period, like Fritz Lieber and guys like that, was nothing like Tolkien. Didn't have the elves, dwarves, orcs, all of that. It's uh, D&D's adoption of those things that I think turned it into turn those into generic fantasy tropes so that they show up in things like World of Warcraft and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So elves, absolutely. Elves are in previous kind of mythic and legendary sources in uh, the, you know, kind of the ger- broader Germanic world, but the specific form that they take ha- owes, owes much more to Tolkien. Dwarves even more so uh, owe, owe their character in D&D. To, to Tolkien, even though there are dwarves in uh, Norse mythology, Norse Norse legend, halflings uh, in in the first in the original Dungeons and Dragons, they were actually called hobbits. Uh, the name was changed to halflings when actually one of the uh, I believe it was Tolkien's estate or something. Someone some entity connected to it actually sued. <laughs> uh, TSR for, for using hobbits. They had living trees that they called ints. Oh, wait. Which they called, which they changed to treants mm-hmm. when, uh, after, as a result of, of the lawsuit. So there's a lot of, a lot of Tolkien. That's a lot of the DNA of Tolkien is in, is in D and D. And you see it mainly in those areas. Uh, characters like the Rangers, uh, I, I think, if somebody had said ranger, uh, you get to play a ranger in Dungeons and Dragons in a world without Tolkien, you would have imagined, I don't know, like a Canadian Mountie or something. Or I, that's that's still what I imagine. Yes. <laughs> uh, when in fact it's something more like a, like a woodland scout ninja guy, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's, like, he's like half Fenimore Cooper, half Robin Hood. Um. <laughs> Which which is which is Aragorn's character, uh, the the Ranger of the North from from the Lord of the Rings, and that's basically what the D and D Ranger is. So a lot of those uh, kind of character and and uh, what you would call race or species tropes are pretty much straight out of Tolkien. There's there are a lot of points of departure though. For one thing, in Middle Earth, people wear significantly more clothes <laughs> than uh, it often seems to be the case in illustrations from D&D, especially early illustrations of D&D, but I guess this is a trope that continues, actually. This has more to do with Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, his Tarzan books, his Mars books, the Barsoom books, uh, featuring John Carter of Mars. Uh, John Carter, the the man who, who basically runs around in his underpants with a sword and a laser gun fighting Martians who also run around in their underpants. Uh, Tarzan, who famously runs around in, you know, not but the skins of animals, if anything at all. Also, uh, Robert Howard's Conan, Conan the Barbarian, uh, is incredibly influential on the inventors of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Gary Gydax and Dave Arneson, which is where we get the the barbarian fantasy trope is just straight out of Conan, mm-hmm. though it owes uh, it owes I think as much to uh, the Frank Frazetta art as it does to the texts of the stories. If you read the original Robert Howard Conan stories, Conan wears clothes most of the time. Uh, he tends to wear the local clothes of wherever he happens to be, but. And Frank Frazetta, because Frank Frazetta likes to draw giant muscle-bound dudes whose feet are obscured because he can't draw feet, then, you know, that's that's kind of the barbarian that D&D inherited, that, that visual barbarian. And there are some other, uh, some other strongly uh, influential sword and sorcery fantasy writers of the time that were also, uh, also in the DNA. Also some science fiction writers. Um, one, of the, one in particular... Uh, fantasy writer Michael Moorcock and his Elric of Melnibidne. Melnibidne. It looks like Melnibone, but it's got a funny accent over the E. <laughs> anyway, he's this crazy, dark, anti-hero, albino guy with a living black sword called Stormbringer that talks and drinks souls and infuses him with the power of those he kills. 
incredibly rad, but also influential on D and D, which anyone who's played knows. You know, I mean, you can't sling a dead cat in D and D worlds without hitting intelligent weapons that want to hijack you. So the dead cat would be a uh, formerly intelligent weapon. <laughs> oh gosh. I guess, I guess, yeah. What is so, that like a plus one attack <laughs> with the with the dead cat? Oh goodness. Anyways, so so yeah, a lot of Tolkien in there, uh, but a lot of other a lot of other fantasy DNA as well, which means that D and D feels very different from Tolkien to me when you play it. It's much uh, much edgier much more, much closer to, uh, much closer to dark possibilities. Tolkien has a kind of hopefulness, which I think is sort of coming out of his, his Christian notion of what a story ought to do that is absolutely not present in Michael Moorcock or Robert Howard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, with the result that that D and D could kind of go either way, and it really is up to the roll of the dice. Way less singing in D and D, though, right? Way less. <laughs> I, I think another big side of difference, David, is the the character of wizards in D and D versus in Tolkien. I mean, when uh, Gandalf or even Saruman uh, starts to do magic, it just kind of happens. Uh, yeah. Whereas, I mean, in D and D, the the mage is an extraordinarily bookish sort of character, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, you probably have done more research into the sort of you know literary roots of that tradition, uh, but that's definitely something that you know I I noticed when I you know came to Tolkien after years of playing D and D is that uh, the wizards in there just honestly they strike me more like superheroes than they do like D and D mages. <laughs> I mean, it, it's true because Tolkien's wizards are they either don't do any magic at all or when they do it's apparently effortless and you've got no sense of what the cap is right you know it's not I did this particular distinct spell it's that and Gandalf starts magicking mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, part of that though is simply the necessity of the game right the, the game is played in the course of turns also, if you if you plugged Gandalf into D anD D, he would be a ridiculously overpowered, incredibly high level character. It would it would completely unbalance the game. So turning spells into uh, into a kind of spendable currency mm-hmm. that's also scaled to the experience of the character and the the level of difficulty of the adventure that's that's being undertaken uh it it kind of it, it's it's an attempt to have the magic but also to contain it mm-hmm. but that but even that ends up in some some creating some fruitful imaginative space thinking that way about thinking that way about fantasy magic ends up kind of creating store its own kinds of story possibilities that really are drawing out of uh what what i think is just a the demands of the game mechanic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, I mean, beyond that, you've got all other kinds of character types that really don't find their home in Tolkien. You know, the Druids mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, really are kind of drawn from a sort of, you know, neo-pagan idea <laughs> of nature wizards. Uh, the Paladins that are pretty clearly drawn from, you know, Charlemagne and Roland lore. Uh, yeah. So you definitely have, I mean, it, it's not straight up Tolkien by any means. Don't you think Tom Bombadil's kind of a druid? <laughs> Say more. Oh, hey, I don't know. I haven't read that book in 15 years, but... <laughs> I mean, you say, you say nature magic. Isn't that pretty much Bombadil's stick? Shtick? I guess that's true. And I mean, I, I guess, you know, since in AD&D anyway, and David, you, you've played more versions of D&D than I have, in uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, which is what I always played... Uh, druids have to be true neutral in their alignment, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. That yeah. would fit with Tom as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tom, it, within within the world of Middle Earth, Tom Bombadil is definitely a different kind of creature. Uh, that's not his job. That's the kind of thing that he is. Right, right. But the D and D druid seems to have 
something of the same relationship to the world around him that Tom Bombadil does. He's mm-hmm. more of a, you know, friend of the bears and the squirrels and not so much aligned with the humans or other kinds of intelligent species that are around them. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a magical green piecer. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, Michael, uh, 20, I, I wrote 20 years ago in the notes, but let's be honest, it was more like 27 years ago. Uh, <laughs> I assume that the alignment system was just an uncomplicated character datum. Uh, it's not unlike whether the character was a mage or a paladin or whatever. But now I realize that this two-variable code, one axis representing good and evil, the other one law and chaos, and in which any given character can be neutral on either axis, it kind of stands as its own argument about moral reality. So what kind of ethical reality does a Dungeons & Dragons character inhabit? First, it's kind of cool to try to apply the alignment system to fictional characters that don't come out of Dungeons & Dragons, and it can be it can be fairly insightful. There was a, there was a program on, um, it was Studio 360 a couple years ago where they were looking at, must have been last year, they were looking at the Daredevil TV show and, mm-hmm. and talking about the conflict between Daredevil and Punisher as being a conflict between lawful and chaotic. Mm. Um, oh. So the the lawful chaotic thing is fairly easy to understand. Good and evil, I think, is harder. Um, lawful uh, Lawful means you follow the rules. So it could be a rule uh, imposed on you from an external source, or it could be your own kind of code. Um Chaotic means you actively oppose such things, and then neutral would be somewhere in between. You follow it when it's good for you. Uh, Good and evil are so dependent on the story you're trying to tell that I think think it is less help in real life because everybody would consider themselves to be on the good axis, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're when you're looking at a fictional representation, you know Daredevil's good because Daredevil is part of the. uh, is is the well? He's the show's named after him, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but on, on Daredevil, for example, Wilson Fisk would almost certainly think of himself as on the good axis because he wants to he wants to make the city better, or whatever whatever his bizarre motivations are. So I, I think I think in terms of the good and evil, it's going to depend a lot on um, on who's telling the story. But lawful and chaotic are really interesting concepts that uh, that that. I think can can breed kind of fruitful moral discussions, either of fiction or real life. So let's let's go through the alignments, and you guys can help me think of people who fit them outside of the D and D world. Lawful good would be like Superman, right? This is oh, someone. Yeah. This is someone mm-hmm. who seeks seeks the good and does it absolutely in a rule based way. They're they're boring. Captain America, <laughs> right? Yeah, Captain America, Captain Planet is who I thought yeah. you were going to say. And I, I, I'm just going to. Uh, differ a bit from what Michael just said in passing is that, you know, a character like Captain America, because he has an internal sense of what lawful means that sometimes conflicts with what the powers in the world think lawful means, he stands mm-hmm. to be a very interesting character as he becomes in Winter Soldier and Civil War and whatnot. That's true. That's true. He's not boring the way Superman is boring. Almost to the point where I would call him neutral. But you're right, he does have his own code. And so maybe we need maybe we need a third axis here to describe whether the code is ex- imposed from outside or created internally. Mm-hmm. Neutral good, uh, I would call Batman neutral good. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he follows the rules when he needs to. For example, he doesn't kill people, but he's perfectly willing to he's perfectly willing to break all sorts of laws to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And see, I think uh, of someone like Professor X from the X Men franchise as neutral good. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes that makes sense too. He 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 sometimes follows the rules, but he's also willing to read minds of people who he shouldn't be able to. Fair enough. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. I think so. Chaotic good. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of a good superhero example of chaotic good. Well, I mean, you've got sort of vigilante characters like uh, Green Arrow or someone like that who's decidedly uh, operating outside the law but still does so with a mind to preserve life. Mm-hmm. Han Solo, arguably, especially yeah. in the mm-hmm. first Star Wars, although I think he slides into neutral good by the time you get to the second one or even the end of the first one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh. 
David, anything to add there? Well, I was going to say Iron Man, especially with his his kind of libertarian uh, principles at the end of the first Iron Man movie and the beginning of the second. Uh, he he's he's very much wanting to present himself as a good character who is not part of the system. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He, he plays by his own rules. Right. So, so he's chaotic good would be any of those kind of stereotype 1970s cop yeah. characters who who you know they get they get te- mm-hmm. they get uh they get partnered with the lawful good character but mm-hmm. well, uh, it's, who, it's, what's mel gibson's name in 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 lethal weapon uh i can't remember which one is riggs and which one is murtaugh yeah i can't either <laughs> <laughs> although what's interesting to backtrack to iron man i mean is that by the time you get to captain america civil war Yes, he is yes, yes. The, the representative of the establishment over against Captain America, who has become the outlaw. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yep. which is why I, I think I would hesitate to call Iron Man chaotic. I think he's neutral. Most, most of the appealing hero types in the American fiction of the last 50 years have been, have been neutral good. Okay. Mm-hmm. And see, I was going to say this is kind of one of the shortcomings of the Axis system. Uh, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the same character, depending on the episode that you're in, can fall on different places relative to established law, even as the character remains consistent. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things that I think can be helpful in in imagining how this could work out is to also think, is the character more likely to think that order is going to lead to the good of individuals or more likely to think that order is going to be instead subverted to to suppress and oppress individuals. Hmm, okay. And 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 that instinct I think is also something that's in play in this in this lawful or chaotic um kind of axis. Are you more likely to think that the rules are more likely to be for the good of all? Are you more likely to think that the rules are just trying to keep you down? Hmm. Um, I think that's a good point. We live in a chaotic time, right? We we live in. Mm-hmm. If you look at the the presidential election, there's there's a lot of talk about destroying the system, and and that is that's a fundamentally chaotic mm-hmm. way of thinking. I'll leave good and evil out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things about good and evil, uh, if you read the uh, oh I can't, I can't I think it might be the the, the three point five material when it talks about the alignments it talks about good and evil in terms of selfishness and selflessness oh interesting. which is which is the the only way i could make sense of it in terms of yeah. an objective standard okay that's yeah. interesting because in the uh, ad and d second edition mm-hmm. uh, it's framed in terms of uh preservation of life versus the exertion of will hmm interesting so I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, I you know, I, I realize now, you know, twenty seven years later, that I mean, there's some uh, genealogy of morals, Friedrich Nietzsche baked in there. But uh, of course, I didn't know that <laughs> when I was fourteen. <laughs> right. Well, let's move down to the neutral row. Mm-hmm. Um, so lawful neutral. This would this would be someone who's probably out for himself, but mostly follows a code. Uh, mm-hmm. Conan the Barbarian. Which I've never seen or read, so... Yeah, Conan is just as likely to uh, rescue the oppressed from a horrible tyrant or evil wizard as he is to loot your merchant ship because he happens to be low on coin. He could do one or the other. It, so, it just depends. So Mal from Firefly... Even though he's usually associated with Han Solo, would seem to me to be more lawful neutral than than neutral good. Although he's always standing in opposition to established authorities, so in that respect, so that he's, he's chaotic. Chaos. Yeah, hmm. interesting. Yeah, oh, wait, sorry, but he has sorry. his own code. I, th- yeah. th- that's what I'm saying. He 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 plays by his own rules, but they are rules. He's not making it up as he goes along. Right, and again, I, I think that's a shortcoming of the single axis. Wait, sorry, I, I, I thought we were talking about chaotic neutral. Yeah, no, Conan's chaotic neutral. Oh, gotcha, Oh, okay, yeah. okay, because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, how in yeah, the world sorry. is Conan lawful neutral? No, uh, no, no. Lo- yeah, because Lo- when I think of lawful neutral, yeah. I think of the authority figures in cop shows. Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, sure. So, I mean, since I'm obsessed with The Wire, of course, I mean, these are your Stan Valchek and Bill Rawls characters who really are the embodiment of the system. And mm-hmm. that could turn out very good for the people on the street corner, or it could turn out very bad. But either way, they're going to keep being the system. Mm-hmm. The man. Yeah. Yeah. True neutral's easy. True true neutral is someone who basically rejects the entire morality system. So it's somebody otherworldly generally. Mm-hmm. Um you you talk about druids, they're just they're just not involved. They 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 would do whatever they would want to do. They may have a code, but like it's not a code that we could possibly make sense of. Mm-hmm. Uh what TV tropes calls blue and orange morality. <laughs> it's just completely otherworldly. Huh. I think the Druids are a great example. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. Tom Bombadil. I mean, Tom Bombadil, he's not part of this world. Right, mm-hmm. right. Uh, neutral evil. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, chaotic neutral. Yeah, I, there you go. There I, you I, go. I've got it. I've got it backwards here. Chaotic neutral, as you said, Conan the, Conan the Barbarian, this would, be, this would be someone who openly rejects the rules but might, might sometimes do good things for people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so Captain Jack Sparrow is my go-to yeah. example for this one. Yeah, yeah, he's he's unpredictable, except you can predict him in the sense that you know he's going to do whatever he's not told to do. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lawful evil. I called my uh, I called my provost lawful evil once <laughs> to his to his face. So it's I, I feel okay saying it here. Oh, that's great. That's great. This is someone. This is someone who clings absolutely to the rules, but uses them against the heroes. Which I guess in this scenario is me. <laughs> <laughs> Darth Vader. Darth Vader's uh, uh, lawful evil. Would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean he is the face of the authority. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 he has he has a very set code that he that he plays by. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Darth Vader's the best example I can come up with. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the whole system of 1984. Yeah, is, exactly, exactly is is founded on this idea of how can we use the mechanism of law in order to beat down the human. Mm-hmm. Chaotic. Or, uh, neutral evil is in some ways the scariest, because chaotic mm-hmm. evil you can predict, right? So chaotic evil would be someone who is against you and who always who, who who's going to buck authority, mm-hmm. but you can't predict chaotic evil or uh, neutral evil. It, it mm-hmm. uh, like M- Mr. Burns from The Simpsons is neutral, <laughs> neutral evil. You know, sometimes he sometimes he plays by the rules and sometimes he's completely willing to break them, mm-hmm. but he's always evil. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Uh, who who would you guys call chaotic evil? Cthulhu. Ah, uh, cha- uh, chaotic evil. Uh huh. Um, it's it's always the the psycho killer or the biker gang in a Death Wish movie or mm-hmm. the evil just for the sake of it kind of kind of character right or or the sociopath of the season once you get past about season one of the sopranos uh-huh. when, the, when they would always bring in some character so horrific that tony soprano looks good by comparison richie right. in season two yeah yeah and I, I can't remember any of the characters names because they really were just kind of a plot device after you started spotting the pattern the nazis <laughs> from breaking bad i don't i don't i don't know if you've gotten that far yet nathan I never got past season one, episode three. I quit. <laughs> oh no, you got to keep watching. <laughs> I said, man. So, so if if Gus Fring, if Gus Fring on Breaking Bad is lawful evil, the uh, uh, and Mike Ehrmantraut is is I, I don't want to call him evil, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave him out of it. But if Gus if Gus Fring is is lawful evil, definitely the Nazis are chaotic evil, and that's one reason they're so much scarier. Than he mm-hmm. is in some ways. Well, yeah, and that, that's what really characterizes chaotic evil is that they might not be the most powerful entity in a story, but they're going to be the most dangerous. Uh, so, I mean, you know, in the uh, Godfather movies, these are going to be the sort of rogue mafiosi who have, you know, broken with the family and therefore are kind of, you know, loose cannon, uh, mm-hmm. very, very dangerous characters, even though you know that the damage they can do because they don't have the system behind them 
is going to be limited, you could be the one that they take down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're 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 completely immoral and completely against structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, there you go. And again, I mean, not only can you argue about where somebody belongs and say, well, he belongs this place now and this place then. Um, there's there's millions. You you could presumably do this for any fictional character who had any kind of real personality. Right. Mm-hmm. And this honestly was one of my favorite. Uh, trends in Facebook memes. I haven't seen one for a while, but they would plot, you know, Marvel <laughs> superheroes on the D and D system or Lord of the Rings on the D and D system or, you know, characters from various franchise. Yep. Muppets on the D and D system. And it's a lot <laughs> who's of fun. The, who's the chaotic evil Muppet? The guy who throws the fish. <laughs> it's been so long. I, I don't remember. I, animal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Animals, animals, kind of a friendly version of chaotic evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in that universe, that's about as close as you get to chaotic evil. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and like Sam Sam Eagle would be lawful evil. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. So, and Ga- Gonzo like is chaotic neutral. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and like I said, Michael, I mean, one thing that strikes me interesting again, you know, dang near thirty years later, uh, is that you know this is a helpful structure for you know teenagers you know trying to plot the actions of you know role-playing game characters uh in a story but you know now that you know 30 years and three graduate degrees have come and gone uh i kind of recognize <laughs> that again this single axis of law and chaos and then this single axis of good and evil are at the very least you know uh, going to be inadequate to a lot of the really interesting literary characters we know. Right. Well, it is it is worth thinking about uh, the way that it attempts to actually build some kind of uh, ethical reality into the world of the game mm-hmm. so that certain races, certain monsters, uh, even certain objects are in, uh, attuned to different parts of the axes. You know, so that a character might find themselves more naturally um, harmonious with particular aspects of the world based on their personal uh, alignment, and so it, it's actually doing in-game work in that way. It's not just a, a bit of data about the character; it's also showing how they fit into a world that is constructed along these lines, mm-hmm. uh, which. You know, uh, for for two for two intersecting axes with four poles, uh, I think it does a pretty good job of representing a lot. But you're right; it can't get everything. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and the other thing, TV tropes will tell you is that, especially with chaos, there's a really dumb way to play it. They call it chaotic stupid. <laughs> yes. So if you're yes. if you're playing a if you're playing a chaotic character, you can't just like anytime somebody does says something, you do the opposite, and you you can't just like you can't act openly antisocial all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. That that's not really what chaos means. It just means in right. general you're 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 disobeying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean that that's something that I, I remember some of the source books for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. You know. Uh, now that I look back, I realize that they were running up against the difficulty with that is that if you are predictably disobeying every order that comes your way, that becomes a lawful behavior of sorts. (laughs) Well, certainly a predictable behavior that your dungeon master can take advantage of. Yeah. Don't step on that giant red square. Oh, (laughs) you did. You fell into the pit trap. Right, with a gelatinous cube at the bottom. Watch, you're dissolving. We're watching your chaotic, stupid butt dissolve. It's great. <laughs> it makes me think of that Simpsons episode where Homer has the index card that says, always do the opposite of what Bart says. <laughs> <laughs> and Bart says, don't give me that card. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. shoot. Well, anyway, uh, David, in your observation... How has the game's reputation shifted over the years? Uh, mm. I know that from my, you know, teenage years, it's definitely undergone a, a, a reputation shift at the very least. 
is there still a significant satanic panic hovering around the game or have Pete Jackson's movies and World of Warcraft and other such things pretty much brought them into the youth group world without remainder? Mm. There are still those in the in the world of evangelicalism, uh, the more, you know, kind of fundy fundy wing that's still deeply suspicious of fantasy just in general and which which would encompass dungeons and dragons as well uh, it's the the sorts of people who who seriously write books about harry potter being an initiation into witchcraft uh which shows both an ignorance of an ignorance of both harry potter and witchcraft <laughs> so so such things still exist but yeah, I think for the most part, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, Tolkien, the fact that, that that there was kind of a, a, a Tolkien renaissance in the kind of late 90s going into the 2000s, that the movies helped fuel of Christians, especially evangelical Christians, finding Tolkien and finding in Tolkien a a story with a very strong moral compass that resonated with them. Mm-hmm. That I think has done, uh, has done a lot to change the way evangelicalism in general feels about the fantasy genre that they have warm fuzzies about Tolkien. They already had it about Narnia because Aslan was so obviously supposed to be Jesus-y, but not Jesus, not strictly, but anyway, so so they already liked Narnia and then Tolkien has kind of made them uh, made made that community much more receptive to the idea of fantasy in general much less likely to see fantasy tropes and immediately go on high alert <laughs> so to speak but it, it's it's still out there i mean I, I imagine if you if you poke around you can still find jack 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 chick dark dungeons tracks out there <laughs> um you know, such such things exist, but a lot of it just has to do with age. the 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 kids who were playing D anD D in the eighties are now dads. <laughs> so this 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 current generation of young parents isn't uh, is not an outsider to this hobby. It's a hobby that they've grown up with. It's a lot. It's a lot the same with with video games. You know, if you were if you were born in, you know, the the late forties or in the you know the fifties, early sixties, and you didn't grow up with video games in quite the same way as as our generation did, um, the the degree to which uh, you know, especially young men, but not exclusively young men, continue to be interested in playing video games after their childhood years, into their twenties, and even beyond to an older generation just looks just looks silly and childish but it's a hobby they enjoy it's one that they've grown up with and in a lot of ways has grown up with them so it 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 feels no less natural for a 30 year old or 40 year old to play D&D and be interested in D&D than it does for that guy's dad to have continued to be interested in baseball after playing it in his backyard when he was a kid. Mm. Or television. I mean, television is the thing that the generation before us Mm -hmm. wasn't panicky about that the generation before them was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or for that matter, rock and roll. Right, right, right. Right. I mean, not that there isn't stuff that that needs a content warning. I mean, there's always going to be stuff that needs a content warning. Um but the 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 genre itself the kind of thing that D&D is uh, i think has been pretty pretty well established to be this is this is a game it is for fun a bunch of people sit around and depending on their age drink mountain dew or they drink beer and everybody has doritos and <laughs> it's it's just a fun time and uh the a lot of the, that just just acclimation i think has made that that older uh, the 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 former days the the days of yore have uh, have faded into the mist and now 
are mostly remembered only with nostalgia by those who still like D&D. <laughs> I've heard more D&D people joking about the satanic panic in the 80s mm-hmm. and collecting Jack Chick tracks about D&D and stuff like that. Like, like I have the, to- the, the Tom Hanks Mazes and Monsters VHS, <laughs> right? Um, because... because of course you do. <laughs> but well, but, but it, it's it's like a relic of from an era in which a game that I'm inter- of which a hobby that I'm interested in was was scary and terrifying, and now it's just funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. My, my it, I wonder. Is... I wonder if we'll see a renaissance of it, given number number mm-hmm. one that Community episode, and number mm-hmm. two Stranger Things had a really heavy. D and D plot to it, so oh, okay. I wonder. I wonder if we'll see young people pick it up. There's been a lot more interest of late. A lot of it has to do with con culture, con, uh, comic convention culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people dressing up like you know characters from Japanese cartoons, and you know, going to cons to look, look at other people dressed as characters from Japanese cartoons. But there, there's, there's a, very a subculture strong... I don't understand in any way. <laughs> well, I, I guess what I mean to say is the young get interested in particular things. Card games are a big deal now, and I don't understand the card games. I don't understand Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, and I don't understand how those how those work. Magic the Gathering. Yeah, I, I don't mm-hmm. get those. Talk about satanic panic. I had a friend in college. <laughs> this would have been 2000, 2001. And he... Um, he and his buddy were playing Magic the Gathering in the in the TFC's uh, uh, student lounge or whatever, and uh, this RA came by and said, "There've been complaints about you playing Magic the Gathering. You have to go somewhere else." Oh, <laughs> that's sad. Yeah. Also, who 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 is distressed by somebody else playing Magic the Gathering? The RA. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I I think there's 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 just a general interest in all things geeky, and accompanied by a powerful sense of even borrowed nostalgia for a time that they did not live in. You know the you know the young are super interested in the eighties and nineties they didn't grow up in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think it's about time. Um, D and D fifth edition came out in. 2014, 2015, around in there. Um, I've heard, I haven't played it, but I've heard good things about it. And uh, importantly, the most basic rules and like hundreds of pages of documentation on it, they're making available for free on the D&D website. So they're, they're doing what they can to, you know, encourage people who are curious to pick it up without the enormous investment in giant hardcover books. So when are we going to start the uh, Christian Humanist D and D Society? Nathan, as, you can you can as DM as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say if we have listeners who want to start that up, uh, you can feel free. <laughs> no, nice. I, I've actually got a number of uh, students, a lot of them English majors, but not all of them, who uh, play a regular mm-hmm. game here on Emmanuel's campus, and they they often invite me to come and sit in, and I say I'm I'm sorry, I got to go coach baseball and stuff. <laughs> do dad things yes <laughs> you just need to get micah interested in the game and then you can bring him oh there you go nice. <laughs> yeah cool. I, I i have to admit david i mean and again you know as the elder statesman of our trio um it was about 10 years ago now that uh you know a, a kid whose parents homeschooled him because they didn't want him around the pernicious influence of public schools in rural North Georgia uh, went on at length to me about all of the different spells that his mage character on world of Warcraft could cast. And I remember just having this moment of cognitive dissonance. It's like, what, what that you're not supposed to be the kid who knows about all this stuff. You're the, (laughs) (laughs) and I I realized, you know, first of all, that I'm getting old. uh, And second of all, you know, the world has changed. Yep. It's mainstreamed, man. My uncle met his uh, one of my one of my uncles met his wife playing World of Warcraft, <laughs> and they don't look like the kinds of people that you think of when you think of World of Warcraft. Yeah, I mean he's like a big burly 
former firefighter dude and you know she was i i i yeah anyway they they you know you the the what you call the thing of me the uh stereotype mm-hmm. is and the sorts of people who are into this stuff is basement dwellers right and so, the important the important thing but can we all true. agree that Final <laughs> Fantasy 2 is the best Final Fantasy? Now, that's the, the American <laughs> Final Fantasy 2 for Super Nintendo. I know it was Final Fantasy 4 in Japan. We're talking about the one with Cecil the White Knight. <laughs> can we agree that's the best Final Fantasy? I, I actually never played that one, unfortunately. Oh, it's so good. The story is so good. So, so David, uh, did you end up uh, able to go to the wedding of Mr. and Mrs. Jenkins? Uh yes, yes I did. It was uh it was actually really awesome. And I like I liked Final Fantasy Six, Michael. I never played that one. Oh, six was amazing. I I'm old enough I only ever played the original. Oh, six the is... original's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> well there you go. <laughs> well Michael, I've actually awesome. spent more time playing role playing games set in America than I have games in fictional medieval settings. I've done Wild West games, cyberpunk games, a whole mess of superhero games that really, I mean, just kind of fit fine in modern Western Hemisphere places. But usually when people think of these kinds of games, swords come to the imagination far more readily than do six shooters and supercomputers. Why do you think that is? Well, I think what they all have in common is they're foreign they're they're not they're not the life you live now and that's what's important and so for a certain species of person it doesn't happen to be me the 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 world they would rather inhabit is this is this fantasy one and because that that's the one that came first because that's the one that because that's the one with the uh with the satanic panic because that's the <laughs> one that's the one that mainstreamed that's the one everybody thinks of but mm-hmm I would be very interested in playing a Wild West one or a Cyberpunk one or whatever else. I, I think they all do the same thing, which is well, there's not a there's not a role playing game where you're a English professor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Although I would probably play that too. Uh you you can you can actually play a college professor in Call of Cthulhu. Now horrible things happen to you because you don't have really good survival skills, but but you could. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> David, I mean, I, I did you ever play any of these American-based games or well, Call, Call of Cthulhu is set well, there there are a number of different time settings, but mm-hmm. they're set in a more or less real world of the 1920s. Okay. So basically roaring 20s with, you know, horrifying monsters from the sea and things of which man was not meant to know and so forth. Mhm. But 1920s, so you can you can have your Tommy gun, right? Yeah, you can, yeah. You can you can have your cool 1920 car, 1920s cars. You can, you know, you can do all of that cool stuff. Um, so the I, I've played some of that. I've always wanted to play a western, um, but just never never had the chance to. That that was one of my favorite games to be a game master of. It really was just because the I guess all of the temptations, you know, to make everything about slaying the dragon went away, so it became more of a challenge for storytelling. Oh yeah, Nathan, be our uh, be our Wild West GM. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You're just gonna keep after this, aren't you, Michael? You're yeah. the one who suggested this episode. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. to talk about it. I <laughs> doesn't nice. mean that I got the time to do it. Um, you have as much time as everybody else. You just don't know how to prioritize. I, uh, you, 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 got me, you got me there, Michael. You got me there. <laughs> there are 24 hours in everybody's day, unless they're, unless they're in outer space. Yeah, because you know, you know Nathan's just blowing all his time doing nonsense stuff. Stuff you know? with his kids. Yeah, Aren't I Aren't they old enough to take care of themselves? <laughs> oh, shoot. All right. Mm. As our listeners who have ever played these games know, we really haven't even scratched the surface of these games that filled so many good evenings of my younger years. So I'm going to leave the ending open here. So let's go around the horn one more time and talk a little bit about role-playing games in the world of Christian thinkers. Uh, Do they hold any promise still, any danger? Uh, Say what you're going to say, David. 
Go ahead and start. I think that thinking Christianly about role-playing games like D&D is not that different. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same kinds of questions that you're going to have to ask about a Christian, a Christian engagement with literary, literature in general. Role-playing games are community-formed stories. All right, in which each player has their own protagonist within the story, and there's some kind of a referee, some kind of a game master, some kind of a a narrator slash umpire figure who arbitrates between these protagonists and makes sure that they don't entirely form the narrative around their whim. All right, and usually there's rules and dice in order to kind of keep some element of chaotic, stark reality. Uh, at play, right? No matter what your choices are, no matter what the rules say, no matter what your narrative is, when you roll a six, it's a six. Mm. So, all that to all all that to say this: the area in which Christian ethics and Christian judgment and Christian discernment lies, not necessarily in the way that you're telling your story, but what your story is, and the ways that your stories shape you. I'm going to hesitate to say we need to restrict and cut off people from whole, whole swaths of libraries. There's too much Milton in me for that. <laughs> but I do know that our stories make us. And to the degree that you find your, you keep finding yourselves in stories that are forming your soul in deformed ways, uh, that's, that's ultimately going to be unhealthy for you. Uh, not just as a Christian, but as a human. Um, I enjoy reading Conan the Barbarian stories, but I have to work against the temptation of finding myself in Conan the Barbarian. He's too chaotic. <laughs> he's he's too he he he's he's too uh, unbound by uh, by ethical demands for me to find myself in that character too much. And if the character that I'm choosing to play in in an RPG is is more like Conan, um, it's not the role playing game that's the problem. Uh, that's the potential problem. It's the fact that uh, I'm kind of saying that I desire to live a story such as this, and it might be just for fun. But to what extent is that telling me a reality about my own desires? You know, um, there's a, 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 a YouTube series that, uh, I like to, I like to watch. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's bizarre and off-putting and I'm not like recommending that everybody go binge watch it unless it's your thing. It's called Drunkens and Dragons. It's a guy who game masters and, and basically he just sort of rambles on for 20 or 30 minutes while apparently partially inebriated about D&D. But he has an episode in which he talks about the moral imperative and talks about the role of ethics and, and, and kind of morality in telling D&D stories. And he comes down hard on permitting evil characters in your player group because he says uh, his, his thing is if you have characters who are actually acting out, if you have, if you have players who are consistently acting out evil characters... Uh, they're going to act in ways that are going to tear the group apart. To, they're going to prevent group cohesion. They're going to, go, going to make friction in real life and ultimately are going to make them worse moral people, which was incredibly interesting coming from this guy. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, you st he, he started sounding like, you know, he started sounding like Alistair McIntyre <laughs> and, and made me think about the possibilities of D&D of &D or games like that as soul formation. Hmm. So that's what I'd say. What do you got, Michael? I would agree with David here. If, if these games have the possibility for good, they have to have the possibility for evil. There's nothing good that can't be corrupted. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not the, it's not the format itself necessarily. I think the format itself is cool in that it is this community, community form of writing. Um, and I think that has certain resonances with Christianity, but be careful. 
not not because the game is evil, but because you are. Yes. <laughs> and I'll just say that, uh, you know, I do remember this game fondly. Uh, I remember uh, Comet Carnival on 38th Street in Indianapolis being a place where, as a kid who wasn't very good at sports, uh, I went into this place and... I discovered Dungeons and Dragons and Heroes Unlimited and all these games where I discovered I was good at something. Uh, mm. And to that extent, I mean, you know, that was definitely an early step in my development as a thinker and a writer and so on and so forth. Uh, I want to go ahead and, you know, acknowledge the open-ended character of these games that David and Michael have, have pointed to. I mean, you know, if it can be good, it can also be bad. I would certainly grant that. Um but I would say that, you know, in my own story, uh, because it did, you know, start pushing me in the directions of thinking about the world in terms mm. of story and, you know, things like that. Uh, and also, frankly, because it set me up to, like Michael was talking about earlier, thinking about characters that I encountered in movies and books and so on and so forth uh, as intelligible. You know, this is a good character. This is an evil character. And here's why. Uh, this is a character who is good, even though she's chaotic, and this is why. Uh, I, I think I think it is uh, a moral education in in a in a way that they were hinting at. But even beyond that, it's a it's an education in thinking morally, if you will. So mm -hmm. uh, I dig it. I dig it. Well, at any rate, guys, uh, I want to thank you for indulging me. Uh, and talking about role-playing games for a spell, but uh, we probably should wrap it up here. So what are we going to talk about next week? Well, it's your favorite sort of episode, Nathan. We're going to do one of our Christian rock episodes. <laughs> this time we'll be talking Yay. about the very strange rock opera, The Grape Prophet, by uh, Lifesavers <laughs> Underground. Uh, I think all the tracks are available on YouTube, but you can also, and maybe should, buy the uh, buy the digital download from the band's Bandcamp site, so I'm sure if you if you search for Bandcamp, The Grape Prophet, uh, it'll show up. All right, all right. Listeners, as you know, you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com and tell us your Dungeons & Dragons story. You can, and we would appreciate it if you would, give, give us a rating on iTunes. That is the leading distributor of podcasts, and therefore it leads people to our show. Christian Humanist Podcast is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amberly Copeland is our intern. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>